Hi, I'm Lynn Up from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Amir Razan. Amir is a Dallas, Texas-based indie game developer and independent software consultant who's experienced working with a number of platforms and languages. Amir also works on several open-source projects and speaks at conferences and user groups, and he blogs at amirrajan.net. He's best known for developing the iOS app for the popular text-based game A Dark Room, which was originally created for the browser by Michael Townsend. Amir's app hit number one in the App Store and has been downloaded over 2.5 million times. You can follow him on Twitter at Amir Rajan. Amir is the author of the LeanPub book, Surviving the App Store, How to Succeed as an Indie Developer, which is a very well-titled book. Um, uh, it's full of lots of great tips um, and a really, I think, very practical and uh, valuable approach to helping people get started um, in, in uh, game development for the App Store. In this interview, we're going to talk about Amir's professional interests, his books, his experiences using LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and for other authors at the very end. So thanks, Amir, for being on the LeanPub podcast. No problem. I'm, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Um, so I, I always start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I, I was wondering if you could tell me how you first got interested in coding and being a developer and how you ended up um, being a game developer and working on a dark room. Yeah. Um, so I guess a lot of people should be able to relate a little bit to the story. Um, I I learned how to build software through like just building video games. So uh, I think uh, my first thing was I tried to build a, a chessboard with the Knights Tour. So it was, I think it was a sophomore in high school at that point in time. And um, I had Turbo C++ and I was like, I want to, you know, try to build chess. Um, pro tip, when you're just starting to get into day, game development or any kind of development, chess is probably the one of the most harder problems you can you can pick up. But, um, you know, I just I, I got my first computer when I was 10 years old. Um, it was a 386 with the turbo button. I played games on there like Scorched Earth. That was like one of my first games that I remember. And then I had like Chessmaster 3000. And uh, that's what really got me into, you know, just just being around video games. And I had the Sega Saturn. I mean, the Sega, the NES, the Atari, you know, so it it just I just grew up with that. And um and then, you know, I just uh, did my thing in in high school, found that I really liked programming and I uh, got a degree at University of Texas at Dallas doing d- software, uh, computer science and software engineering. And uh, during that time period, um, you know, I just finished my degree out and then just went into the corporate world because I guess that's what you're supposed to do, right? Like you have all these dreams and aspirations of, oh, I'm going to, you know, build video games and all that stuff. And then reality hits and it's like, well, I actually have to make money. And um, I became a software developer at that point. Uh, so I did that for uh, eight years. And then I went on a sabbatical and um, kind of saved up enough money to just take some time off. Uh, downsized from like a two-bedroom apartment to one bedroom. My wife was okay with it. You know, our standard of living really didn't change because I made sure to have that really solid, you know, foundation. I took some time off and uh, a darkroom was kind of like, hey, I want to, you know, do iOS development, kind of learn the platform. And this is a really easy, minimalist, text-based RPG that I can port over. Uh, it wasn't, but, you know, it started off, it starts off really simple, and then it comes, becomes really intricate. But um, I kind of just did that, and uh, I ported it. I was really happy with it. I put it in the App Store, and then I kind of became obsessed with the marketing aspect of it and kind of building a user base and, um, you know, kind of watching my baby grow. And uh, it went viral, and... Uh, I guess that's all she wrote, right? Um, after that, I, you know, I was able to. Recently, I went to, 
got a got a new physician and you know on the on the sheet they make you fill out it says occupation and i was able to put down game developer and that was like a a very pinnacle moment for me that i could you know stop calling myself like a software engineer or a software consultant and call myself a game developer and it's so fun because you'll you'll be part of uh conversations and uh before it was like well, so what do you do and i would say oh i'm a software developer or software engineer and then that's kind of where it stopped right because they're like what does that mean? You know, and my wife would be the same thing. Like someone asks her, Oh, uh, what does your husband do? And she goes, I don't know. <laughs> I think he does something with computers. And you always get, yeah, you always get that thing. It's like, Hey, I got this computer problem. You know, I, my, my internet's not working or something. Uh, but yeah. So now, now when I talk with people, it's like, Oh yeah, I'm a game developer and it completely breaks the ice and you can start talking about really cool things from that point. That's a fantastic story. And I got to say, I actually, I can, I can, in, in a very strange way, I can actually sympathize because, um, uh, my first kind of corporate job was working for a company that's now called deal logic, um, in London. And it was mm -hmm. doing research on mergers and acquisitions basically. And, um, uh, but the company at the time was called Computersoft. Okay. <laughs> and all I had to do was say that name and people like glazed over, not interested. Yeah. You know, it like, was just amazing. Care. Yeah. Like if the word went, you don't even need full computer in it, you know, like it's just, it's just, you know, enough. and it's so interesting. They have, um, you, you start talking about, Oh, I'm in, I'm in, uh, I do software development or programming and like, Oh, so you're in it. I hear that's not a great industry to be in. Like suddenly they know everything about it and they can just group it into this like one one umbrella of um, of a discipline, I guess. Yeah, it's actually, this is, I mean, I don't know if this is a tangent, but it's actually a very interesting, um, uh, big topic and very important, I think. For example, there was a recent exchange I saw on Twitter where some, I think, relatively prominent journalist based in New York um, tweeted about, uh, I think the guy's the co-founder of Vox. Okay. Um, and he had written a, a, a Medium post about... Um, uh, you know, the digital publishing, basically. And then this guy had sent out a tweet saying, like, how can this guy, a tech administrator, you know, yeah. talk about digital media? To which, of course, he, he sort of had a really snarky reply. And, like, you know, Mark Andreessen retweeted it saying, what's a tech administrator? You know, ironically. Right. Um, and I actually replied to that with a, an image from Peter Thiel's book of um, the Solyndra guy next to um, uh, Elon Musk. <laughs> I got to see the tech yeah, administrator guy on the right, right? But like, there's a weird, there's a weird preoccupation that people who I think are unfamiliar with software have, um, where it's kind of scary to them, right? Because mm -hmm. the guy who knows the or the person who knows how the computers go, actually, you know, runs everything, yeah, and, and knows how everything works, and it's very unsettling, I think, to people who aren't familiar with software, but sort of have a prominent position from a kind of legacy institutional structure. So right. they, they take the opportunity to sort of goad the new media guy for actually knowing how the computers go. Um, right. As though that's somehow evidence that he's not, he doesn't understand the real work of publishing. Yeah. And, you know, and I can empathize from that too. It's like when my car breaks down, or at least originally, I take it to the mechanic and he's like, yeah, you got this and this wrong. And if you feel so disenfranchised, right? Uh, you know that this person kind of has the, the upper hand. At least, I mean, you got to trust him and you know have that kind of rapport. So it, it's it's frustrating. I hope you know in the future more people are, I guess, more literate at 
manipulating a general computing machine, right, and doing something with that. But uh, I, I guess that'll just come with time. I think by extension, I think game development does a really good uh, job of that. Because when when I released ADR to, to iOS, um, I've had like teenagers uh, email me saying, "I want to get into game development." Like this is this is one of the first games where I really enjoyed it and. I I saw that you don't have to have crazy graphics or like 3D models or anything to actually build something that people will enjoy playing, and uh, they they could visualize like I can create a button, like I can I can put some text on a screen. That's not these aren't difficult things. I mean it, it, they're familiar to some extent, and uh, that's what kind of got them into game development. I, I had people actually email me, oh here's this like Python console based game that I built, and it's so awesome. I just play it's like oh this is the coolest thing in the world. Um, and to be able to inspire people uh, from that perspective has been, you know, has been pretty fun. Yeah, well, it's got to be really um, rewarding to, to, to sort of have a community built around it and to, you know, have people emailing you with their creations. I mean, and to be able to be a game developer yourself and, and create things. Um, actually, I had a question. You brought up your mm-hmm. sabbatical um, and I found that really interesting. I was wondering, um, uh, have your employers since then cared about you taking a sabbatical is it something that they ask questions about or is it like they're just not relevant you're a good you're a good developer and that's it yeah uh, so for me the sabbatical was actually a learning sabbatical so um i was primarily a .NET c sharp developer and during that i guess i would say 14 15 months off um i ramped up on a whole a whole lot of tech so uh, became really proficient with ios um i did i did a lot of um uh, Ruby development, I guess, primarily for build automation. So I got into Ruby. I, I say I'm a Rubyist because I got into Ruby using Rake to build .NET projects. And uh, that was like a really, usually you hear Ruby developers, oh, I did Rails, but I have very little Rails experience. A lot, all my Ruby experience is through building iOS games and actually doing build automation for .NET. But during that sabbatical, it, I ramped up on so much stuff, uh, Node, Angular. I did a lot, of, a lot of Knockout back in the day, too. Um, so JavaScript, a lot of runtime things. I finally went into my OS X like, partition. So I had a Mac, but I always used Boot Camp. And that's what I would – I love the, the device and the, the system itself. I just never used the Mac partition. So this was like an opportunity for me to do that. So when uh, I talk with employers – and I say, well, I took a two-year sabbatical to really ramp up on you know, other technologies uh, and uh, kind of saw, saw myself as an integration spe- specialist. So not only do I know .NET, I know Rails, I, I, I know Node, I can, I can do QA stuff, I can do mobile development. So I can speak a lot of different languages with regards to um, real languages, right, interacting with humans. And the fact that I created a product, it makes me a little bit more uh, am, uh, able to communicate with the business business and say, like, I, I understand that you've got these limitations or you've got these things that you're trying to accomplish and let's see if I can figure something out for you all. So it's worked out pretty well for me. Um, the, the other side is that I've kind of become unemployable from that perspective too because you start valuing your time so much more. Um, you You kind of realize that, wow, nine to five is – Nine to five on a salary is is uh, leaves very little for I guess the person from some perspective, especially especially with the market as it is today. Um, I think you know taking the plunge and taking the risk, maybe doing independent work, maybe doing uh, having some kind of side hustle is so valuable. And um, I think uh, yeah, usually some employers are like, "What do you mean you don't want to go salary?" or "What do you mean?" 
you don't want to work 40 hours a week. Uh, and it's just kind of weird for them hearing that uh, from from a potential potential person. But yeah, I do contract work part time. So I'll do you know six months of contract work. And then when I get the itch to actually do game development, I'll go back to game development and go back to contract work and flip flop. If I find a really interesting project, I might do a year contract or if I want to do game development right now I'm in the game development phase I've kind of laid out my next eight months and that's what I'm going to do and then hopefully and then go back to quote-unquote contracting afterwards yeah that's a really great story and it sounds like a pretty pretty cool position to have built for yourself um, I was wondering you what this is actually not sort of specific to you but one thing I've been interviewing uh, lean pub authors for a while now and they're mostly developers or involved with software one way or another and one thing I've noticed is that about half studied computer science and half didn't. Mm -hmm. um, That's so, interesting. Yeah. And so one question I'd like to ask you is, I mean, I think, I think you graduated about 10 years ago. Um, yeah. December of 06. Okay. Um, yep. uh, would, if you, knowing what you know now, if you were talking to you about to graduate from high school, would you recommend studying computer science? I think uh, I think personally I needed that structure, um, and I loved I loved programming from the get go. And I think around two thousand one, emphasis on having the computer science degree was much much heavier. Uh, especially you know you didn't have you didn't have a public portfolio, right? GitHub didn't exist. Um, you couldn't publish something to an app store, right? I think in this day and age, if someone was like, "Oh, I want to get into computer science and programming." The first thing I would ask them is, well, do you have an app or show me your website or because it's so much more accessible these days. Um, so I think if I was, a, you know, the graduate high school now, I think my answer would have been uh, build something, get something out there and, and show me what you made. Um, and it, it's kind of weird because uh, you have you have some more um, formal, formal professions like uh, like nursing or accounting or business that I think you really need to have that really strong fundamentals that are taught in in uh, in college, um, at least for what kind of, the kind of software that I build, uh, you can hack a lot of things together and, and get away with it, right? If I if I was really interested maybe in like compiler design or you know distributed systems or like network protocols, uh, I don't think I could get away without having a you know a formalized education, but um, at least for the business apps that I build, the credit apps, product pages, games, uh, you could probably get away with just building something and then just being hungry from that perspective. Yeah, it's really interesting. One one person I interviewed recently said, um, who's in software testing, um, said that he um, would still take four years to study and build things, mm -hmm. but he wouldn't do it at university. So it's like this this concept of taking a chunk of time at the beginning of your career that you devote to specifically kind of to becoming something that you're not yet um, yeah and is, is still an important phase that. to go through yeah yeah recording uh, i think the a big um, another important thing is to just document that in some way to show to people so when they say oh you don't have a degree it's like well you know i have 10 apps in the app store or i built these websites for a bootstrap this company or you know i helped this mom and pop shop set up a checkout center and all those things perk up your ears, especially from a junior dev when you hear that kind of stuff. It's really, um, one, uh, turning to um, a dark room or ADR as you call it. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so one of the things, I mean, there's so much to talk about. I mean, it, it's been written about on Huffington Post and New Yorker and, and stuff like that. And you've got this great 
post on Reddit as well, where you talk about about uh, what you did, um, in addition to your book, of course, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, but um, I wanted to ask you, there's a really interesting feature of, of your success with the game, which is that you don't, there's no kind of reason you can attribute to its taking off. It just, as you said at the beginning, it, it just went viral. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, I was thinking about it, it's interesting because like playing a dark room, you know, unexplained things just suddenly happen and kind of yeah. <laughs> change the game for you, right? And I was just wondering if you wanted, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about what, what's that experience like when like you've worked on something, it's been out there for a while, and then inexplicably it's suddenly a hit. I mean, what's that, what's that like? Um, so the, the short version is you're not prepared for it. Uh, I don't think anything I've done in my life could have prepared me for getting, you know, 20,000 downloads a day for, for effectively, you know, a little bit over, over two weeks. You, and you, you wake up in the morning and you see, because you can go to iTunes Connect and see how many downloads, and, and you hit the number one spot, you're like, oh, 20,000 downloads, like that's, I'm going to get a six-figure check from Apple this month. And uh, it's just, it's surreal. I, I, I lost sleep. Um, when it went viral at the end of um, March in, in the UK, and, I'll, and I have some ideas about how some of the virility occurred, but it went viral in the UK, uh, at the at the end of March, and then it took 12 days for it to go viral in the U.S., and then it stayed there for 18 days, and it finally fell from the number one spot. I did a release, and then it went to the number one spot again for two more days. So during that time period, uh, I didn't sleep. Uh, there were there were it's really difficult um, to to put into words. What what made it? What when what? Can you maybe explain a little bit about like how did your day change? Like were you getting inundated with messages from people and like requests from the media? And so yeah, the request from the media came when when I hit the number one spot. That's when uh, like Huffington Post, The New Yorker, and those uh, those people started contacting me. And of course, you say yes to everything because you're like, yes, I want to try to try to push the strain as long as I can. Um, and then you just you kind of wait. Yeah. For me, uh, I actually wrote it in the book as an analogy. Um, it's like you, you, buy, you buy a lottery ticket and you're watching the TV and they give you five of the six numbers and all five of the numbers are correct. So you, you might make, you know, some money, right? You're like, all right, I've got this much in the bank. Great. But that sixth number is where your life changes, right? It's where you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff anymore. And uh, the TV cuts off on the sixth number and you have to wait for some other media outlet to tell you what that six number was. And for me during that time period, uh, I, you know, I do the, I do the math and I say, okay, this, this app needs to stay at the number one spot for 62 days. And I never have to worry about money again. Um, obviously that didn't happen, but, but for that 18 day period, that's kind of what I was mentally going through and just, you know, to stay grounded and to say realistic and say, you know, this is going to end or this, this may not happen. Um, it's, it's a mental, uh, it takes mental effort to, to not, not get away, get away with yourself. And every moment, like every three minutes I was checking the app store, am I still number one? Am I, am I still number one? Am I still number one? Uh, so that doesn't go away. Uh, that didn't go away during that time period. And at the number one spot, I got about 300 reviews a day. So just reading the reviews, it was nice. You know, that it gave me something to do <laughs> while I'm toiling away going, Oh gosh, what's going to happen? Uh, you can't release a new version of your game because you don't want to lose your reviews and you don't want to rock the boat, right? So I'm, I'm kind of like in this limbo going, okay, I can't release a new version. Um, I can't make any changes. That There's bugs that have been found and I can't do anything about that. 
So I'm going to just read reviews and refresh the App Store page because I have nothing better to do with my time right now. Uh, so it's kind of like that kind of feeling. Yeah, I've got um, actually a, maybe a kind of specific question, but you, you refer to um, negative reviews in your Reddit post. Um, and yeah. I was wondering, I mean, just thinking about it generally, that nowadays with you know social media and stuff, when you become well-known for any reason, um, mm -hmm. it seems to me everyone just suddenly encounters negativity. That's just a feature of the experience. And I was wondering if that happened to you. Did you encounter people oh, saying yeah. this is a fraud or this is BS or anything like that? Obviously, totally falsely. Yes. Um, uh, uh, but what do you, but how did you, what was your experience like with that? And did you do anything specific to deal with it? Yeah, that was, uh, it's, so negativity is like death and taxes. You're, you're going to get it. Um, especially when you're, when you're in the limelight and you've got that, you know, big target on your back. So what happened in the UK actually was that, so the UK market is, I would probably say a fifth of the U S market. Uh, so hitting the number one spot in the U in the U S took 20,000 downloads, uh, hitting the number one spot in the UK did, took about 5,000. So, um, and coincidentally, uh, getting above the fold, like the top 10 games is significantly less also, right? So in the U S probably takes about four to 5,000 downloads to get to, you know, the number 10 spot in games in the UK, it was only like eight, eight, 900 downloads to get there. So, uh, what happened was I got to the eight, 900 downloads and I became, I was above the fold and that's what slingshotted me up to the number one spot in the UK. And up until that time period, my target category was RPGs. So the reviews were generally good because people wanted a RPG and they downloaded an RPG and that's what they expected. Uh, but suddenly I'm in the top 10 games with like real games. <laughs> you know, you have Minecraft just like above me and I'm like, what, what's going on here? And um, uh, people, uh, it changes. Suddenly someone downloads their game that's looking for, I don't know, like just a regular arcade game. And they're like, what is this crap? How did this get here? So they, le they left one-star reviews. And the interesting thing with the review system is that the way the uh, reviews are sorted, it's by the number of stars and then by length. But you hit some kind of threshold where the length becomes more, uh, more of a factor in the review. So I got, I, I got a few people leave like these really long one-star rants. And they became the top reviews on, on ADR's page. And then it kind of created this herd mentality. So suddenly people that would download this game had this ne negative connotation to the game already going into it. They'd play it for a minute and go, this is stupid. Everyone's right. And then they would leave their one-star rants. And it kind of snowballed. Uh, it got to the point where about 33% of my reviews were, were one-star reviews. And that uh, initially, that was really rough. Um, just uh, like there were I would go on Twitter and search for people talking about a dark room and like try to directly address address their issues saying like look this is this is a real game i promise look look at all the things i've done look at my blog um this is not a fake scam game uh but i think in retrospect it's just you get used to it uh, there's going to be people that uh hate on your, like even the reddit posts uh the two reddit posts that i did uh, there were comments on there was like oh this guy's just doing you know marketing for his own game even though there was like a, a lot of good content and then there was another one where it was like, why are, you, why are you shilling your game out? You've already made you know, $800,000 or $700,000. Why do you have to shill your game? And it, it, it's, you lose either way, right? Because if, if I made my stuff anonymous and said, I'm not going to tell you the name of my game, then I would have gotten negative comments saying, that I don't believe you. you you're just 
you know, blowing, blowing smoke up our skirts with regards to what you've done. So you lose either way. And I think uh, with regards to coping, you just get kind of used to it. Um, so after, you know, after the first drove of negative reviews, I found that I was still getting positive reviews and you just, you just get used to it and you just, it kind of rolls off your back. That's a, after really, a while. that's a really interesting story. Um, uh, you know, one thing is, so for example, you say that, you know, you even got negativity about posting these long, really helpful, yeah. detailed, like, like pieces of advice for people to succeed in the app store. And yep. even then you get negativity. But what also happens is, um, uh, you know, I saw someone, someone had tweeted about it and then a guy like, well, I mentioned him already, but Mark Andreessen retweeted it. Right. And right. I, I, one of the, I mean, I haven't had experience with, you know, success in the app store or anything like that, but one thing I've just remarked is that if you succeed genuinely, smart people, all the smart people see that. Yeah. And and so the negativity is coming from, you know, I won't, no reason to say the negative term, right? But it's coming from not those people. And, right. And then, and then that's one way at least I've found of, of sort of dealing with it is like, well, look, like there are some people who are just not reachable. Um, and, and that's, oh, that's what that person is. And instead of, if they've got, if they've got a problem, the reason they're negative in, in the way they're negative in the first place is because they've got some kind of underlying problem. And so thinking about it that way, it's like, oh, well, I can't, I can't solve their problems for them, right? This isn't my problem. This right. is their problem. And anyway, I, I find that that sort of helps. And I, I think, uh, another thing that I think that helped quite a bit for me was, um, I just, I try to practice empathy. So that was something, uh, it's, it's funny cause I was like 28 when I started the sabbatical and I turned 30 and I don't know, like something clicks in your head. You suddenly, uh, stay young, but become more mature from that perspective. So, um, you know, I think back to my, you know, even 27, 20, I was like, man, I was an idiot and an asshole back then. Um, and then, you know, you grow older and you're like, I, I can, I can do better at just being more empathetic. So you see some of the negative reviews and you got to just think to yourself, like, man, they might be having a bad day. Or they might have tried, you know, doing the same thing I did and really, really struggled with it and are just, yeah, have have some of that resentment that came from their own struggles. So there's no telling, you know, what they could be going through in their life. And I think that really helped also to to kind of ease that. that bro, that's that's interesting. I actually that I, that's another sort of conclusion I've come to about dealing with dealing with people, you know, through a product. Right. Is that you don't know what their day has been like. You don't know if they're at a bad point in their life. You know, right. you, you just really don't know anything about them. And so someone who's relating to you negatively, you know, might, you, yeah, you become a lot more empathetic. And, and one thing I've also found, too, is that treating everybody uniformly in a friendly manner. You yeah. know, if, if you have a negative, negative, if I, like, if there's a negative interaction and you come back with that empathy almost every time you actually get an apology. Yeah. Um, I think that might be a little bit different on Twitter because Twitter is so short form. Yeah. The brevity, you know, it just leads to. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's def definitely like dealing with people over email. Like, you know, that's, that's been my experience in a number of projects is that, you know, if someone's, they just, you know, maybe they just skip lunch, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, um, uh, yeah. And, and then, and then sort of, again, it's sort of another version of like, their, their, their issue is their issue, not mine is a way of coping with it. Um, what about yeah. the, another, on the other side of things, I guess, what about the positivity? I mean, it must've been, 
you must have been elated and it must have been different, you know, having people, like you said, you know, people contact you like, hey, here's my game. And what was that like? Did you have any kind of imposter syndrome kind of thing happen? Uh, yeah, I've struggled with imposter syndrome, period, right? It's like I'm a part of me is even with the new games that I build, I, I'm like, I can't be I can't top a dark room. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got the prequel out there. I've got flat. Uh, uh, I do. Uh, for those that have read Flatland by Edwin Abbott, it's like a it's a it's on the Gutenberg project. If you haven't read it, read it. It's about a 80 page book and it's about a two dimensional shape that lives in a two dimensional world. And it's actually a satire around the age of Versailles, so the Versailles time period. And it's told from the perspective of a mathematician and um, how these these the civilization interacts with each other and how women are treated and and how different caste systems uh, are created within this two-dimensional world. But I built a game around that, and uh, that's like my third game that I'm building. And uh, I, I, I try desperately to say I'm, I need to get out of the shadow of a dark room because – because I need to prove myself that this wasn't just like a one-shot wonder at this point, a one-hit wonder. Uh, so I struggle with that. Imposter syndrome all the time. But, man, the the emails, a lot of that stuff, it just – it is the most rewarding thing I've I've ever experienced. Um, I've done a lot of open source, especially during my you know corporate, corporate time. And you get occasional like thank yous and we really appreciate what you're doing and stuff. But it uh, – you, you get the emails. I've gotten emails with um, – with people saying, yeah, uh, like, I loved a game. I mean, I loved your game. I want to get into game development. But I actually got reviews in the App Store. There was a, one review on a noble, and the reason I mentioned a noble circle was because it was on that uh, on that review. Was he? He was like uh, the review said. Um, today was like my 17th birthday, and I don't think I would have made it past today if it wasn't for this game. So um, it it's like, how do you how do you internalize that that you could have he was on the verge of saying like i was going to end my life and this game kept me from doing that um and when you see when you see reviews like that you it just really puts things into perspective that that you could potentially be changing someone's life um the same thing with uh, another thing with the darkroom is that it's actually playable via voiceover so people that are blind can actually play the game and um you know it hit the number one spot and um and i i got an email from a brother Who's saying like, hey man, I really appreciated that you made the game uh, accessible to the blind because my sister now at school can actually talk about the game with her friends, and uh, she doesn't feel left out uh, around that kind of stuff. So those kind of things, uh, yeah, I hate I hate talking about it, you know, bragging about it. I feel like I'm bragging about it, but those kind of things are just immensely rewarding, and it's just you can't put a price tag on that kind of stuff, and it's it's been humbling, really humbling from that perspective. And uh, yeah, from what you were saying with being genuine, and I, I try my best, absolute best to be genuine with all my interactions and, and whatnot. And hopefully that shows through with, um, you know, whenever I write or talk or um, even in my games, I hope that shows through. Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly think it does, um, especially, I mean, and this is something um, I've got a kind of a particular little um, hobby horse about. There's often when someone has had a success and they're asked about it the story ends up being, well, I was working in the movie store and then I was directing Reservoir Dogs. Right. Um, and, and actually knowing, like, how did... And actually, that's kind of... Like, it's not the best example because Tarantino actually has explained how that happened in detail. But um, but often, you know, people will tell their story about how they became a success and then you'll think back on it like, hey, wait a minute, there's this huge gap. Um, mm-hmm. But what you've done is you've filled in that gap. And there's a sort of really humorous 
moment at the beginning of your lean pub book where you talk about how like there are so many questions to ask like what should what should my stack be what should blah 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 when i'm getting into developing an ios app and then you go well there are you know there are lots of things to choose from but here's one answer and you just list a place to start right um and that is actually like the joke is that it's so it ought to be so obvious that people should do this right but most people don't um it's it's really interesting that people just like they're just like when you're when you're desperate and you're starting out you're just like just tell me what step one and two are what steps one and two are and then right. i can move on but if i have to if i have to know what i'm doing before i start right then i'll never start um right. and anyway and, and uh, like i sort of noticed like you know between your book and your reddit posts and stuff like that like you're obviously like trying to give people that I think my dog is whining. Can you hear? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I, I I'll move him down. Yeah, but the the you give you're giving people that equipment right away, right? Mm -hmm. Which is which is very generous and certainly something um, uh, no one has to do. Um, yeah. You've mentioned a noble circle um, a couple of times, one of your games, and um, I noticed that um, you've written about that too, and um, you published you you were publishing it while it was in progress, right? So the first version was kind of as you say, sort of barely playable. Right. Um, and um, I know that there are in-progress games on Steam, or from what I hear. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, LeanPub, we're into in-progress book publishing. Um, even Kanye West is getting in the game. He's, he was in-progress publishing a song. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, I've never asked someone who's done this with a game before what that process is like. Do you get a lot of feedback from people? Do you have a plan for your releases where, like, it's kind of like you, you, you sort of set up a surprise release in advance or... It, it, what's it like in progress publishing a game? Yeah, I think, um, I, I guess I just kind of realized this idea of incremental development. And this this kind of goes back to my corporate experience because I, I don't want to say that my corporate experience wasn't helpful to me. Um, but um, during during my corporate work, you know, you get all the like agile, big A agile stuff and everything. And um, it it helped because I, I, I understood what it meant to actually incrementally build something. And there's so much pressure to game for game developers to have like this phenomenally perfect release, but we have we have these facilities to allow us to release incrementally. So why aren't we using them? Um, so that was kind of the idea that I had with the Noble Circle. And so my first version was barely playable, and I made it free. And I was like, here, uh, this game is barely barely playable. I'm going to put it out there, and then I put a bit of developer developer commentary at the end, saying that look, the app store's broken, or I think it's broken. Um, we have a lot of ads, we have a lot of in-app purchases, and no one really, everyone's going for this cash grab without really taking into consideration that, you know, you don't, you may not need to do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to release a game, and I promise to update it at least monthly, and you'll see these updates come through. And if you buy it now, or if you get it now, you get it for free, and eventually it's going to cost money, but right now I think, uh, I don't feel it's worth money. So just take this journey with me, and not only are you going to get a completed product, but you're going to see the story of how I got there. And that's been really great. Um, I, you get negative feedback saying like, you know, the jump mechanic's stupid or things like that. I listen to that and incorporate it. But then you have people that say, yes, there's another update. I can't wait to, to try it out and kind of see what, what he did differently or, you know, what kind of changes did he make? And they love that aspect of it because they replay the game and go, oh yeah, he added this new thing or I like the change that he made there or he added a new chapter. And, um, it's it's wonderful. It's still not done, but I'm charging a dollar for it now. 
And um, I released a, a free version that's a Noble Circle Prologue that kind of had that initial experience, a much more polished version of that initial experience. And then there's an interstitial to say, here's what I think is wrong. Here's what I'm trying differently. Go, go buy my other game or go buy the full version if you want to continue the story. And uh, I, hear, I hear game developers say, oh, I'm going to start a Kickstarter. But I kind of quasi did that myself. I just did my Kickstarter in the App Store and um, said, you know, if you like what I did here, buy the full version, buy a dark room, buy the ensign. You know, you have different options there. And if you didn't, if you didn't, no problem. I mean, you didn't lose anything. Hopefully, you played a little bit of it, and you, maybe you can give me some feedback on that. But generally speaking, all the reviews have been very positive, um, and this approach has been really exciting for the end user and for me too, because I just enjoy doing it. You know, it's interesting. I actually don't know the answer to this question, but um, can you get refunds in the App Store? You can. You can. So um, on, it's it's tricky, right? They don't they don't uh, they don't advertise it, but on the receipt that you get, uh, it'll say you know you've purchased this game, and there's two there's two links. Uh, you can gift the game to someone, and you can report a problem with the app. So if you click the report a problem button, you can actually get a refund, and there's a drop down list of why you wanted to re- get a refund. So you can say, oh, I accidentally brought it, bought it, or it wasn't what I expected it to be, or whatever. And generally speaking, they do give the refund, but it's kind of like an all they don't advertise. They say all sales are final. Um, no refunds, but you can get a refund if you if you go through that process. That's really interesting because as you as you pointed out, you know, this there's all these tools to kind of publish incrementally, right? And like whether you know that can be various types of products, but especially obviously suited to digital products, right? And so there's right. I have this view that we're kind of like we are sort of working out what commerce is like around things that aren't finished. Yeah, and that's kind of like why I like LeanPub too from that perspective. It was just, man, I can put something out there. I've written, a, and that's how it kind of started was I had the blog entry and I had all this blog information in there, but it was kind of, I, I took, the first step was take that blog, put it in the book, and then write a postmortem on all the postmortems that I wrote. And um, that that worked out really well and got some, because I could reflect back and say, oh, during this time period, I thought that this was the problem, but this was really what was happening during that time period. So sorry to cut you off, but I just went. Oh, that's, no, that's great. Yeah. No, um, and actually I have a couple of questions about that uh, that I'll ask in a couple of minutes. But yeah, the, the theory that that I have at least is that um, especially if, uh, let's say, a digital good is published in progress, but also kind of self-published, right, where there isn't what you call like a AAA company or something like that right. behind it, um, that putting forward the fact that it's easy to get a refund actually is a very important step in establishing that relationship, that positive relationship between kind of the person who's buying the thing and the person who's making the thing, because Mm -hmm. then you can kind of, there's this positivity and this openness to it right from the start, which is like, we trust you, right? Is actually, is actually your first encounter with us is us trusting you and asking you to take some place some trust on us, right? That like, you know, right. you're, you've, you've released something early and unfinished, but I'm trusting you that it's, you know, that you're going to do, you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And that, you know, you know, all that kind of thing. And I think that actually, yeah, like my theory is that surfacing the ability to easily get a refund for a product you can download um, actually drives sales, um, especially in the long run. Yeah. And I think, and it's, you see the, the other the other side of that coin, um, I, I try not to, you know, obviously try not to worry about it. But uh, there was a, a indie game game developer, game development company that uh, built a game called Firewatcher, 
Um, it's on it's on Steam right now. Like if if you haven't played Firewatcher, uh, definitely you can get it on PS4. You can get it on Steam. Uh, I don't know if it's on th- uh, Xbox One, um, but it's a they, the the thing is they call it a walking simulator. So you basically you're you're basically this this guy that's um, in Yosemite National or Yellowstone. Or, yeah, it's Yellowstone National Park, and uh, you're basically making sure that there's no forest fires. Um, but there's this whole story and this relationship that you build with another another person that's also watching a fire in a different in a different co- quadrant of Yellowstone, and kind of uncovering your own past, what happened to you, and why you're there, and you know what happened. But there's no way to die. There's no like, there's no um, there's no objectives that you can fail at. It's basically a walking simulator where you pick up things and talk on a walkie-talkie with this other person. And uh, this, uh, what happened on Steam was that this this it, it was selling for like fifteen bucks. And this person was like, "Yeah, I got I got this game. I beat it in about three hours, and I kind of want a refund because I could do something else with this fifteen bucks. I mean, I love the game, but." You know what should I do? And the developer actually responded to that to that entry. Um, at, at the end, the person said, "You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get the refund." But it's it's really weird that that even during this in this digital age, we still haven't found a way to assign value to something that you can't touch and feel right. And uh, that's something that I've that everyone in the app store struggles with, uh, especially premium game makers. Is that I. Apparently it's so difficult. I, I can buy a seven hundred dollar device, but I can't sell a game for ninety nine cents without people feeling like they've been cheated um, if they don't like it. And uh, I, I'm I'm hoping you know as time goes on and we get more digital things, people just are okay with it. But uh, that's been that's been a struggle that I've seen uh, personally myself. Yeah, it's interesting. It's in that broader class of you know we're engaging in a new new forms of commerce now like you know that have been enabled by certain types of technology and there's right. no there's no common sense yet right it's so yeah. it's so new we haven't had time to develop like you remember how people used to um leave their ringers on their mobile phones mm-hmm. on when they were walking around right and you basically never hear i mean i basically never never, never. hear a phone go off anymore <laughs> you don't hear the but, custom ringtones that they had <laughs> yeah but when they first came so, out it's... people people would do that um and it takes a while for codes and conventions to be built. Um, but one thing we've definitely experienced at LeanPub is, um, uh, you know, we, we surface to people that um, refunds are two clicks away. Um, right. That means that, yes, you can, if you want to, you can buy a book and download it, and then you can get your refund. I mean, obviously, we don't encourage that, but it, it's rare. Yeah, and you don't and, sweat it. You try not to sweat that either. Well, you can't. Yeah. I mean, with BitTorrent and whatever, you know, you can't. Right. It is, I mean, uh, this is my personal opinion. People in the East industry obviously have many different opinions about it. And as we're talking about, people are still working it out. Right. But my view is that, especially if you're, if, you're, if you're a creator, right, if you're creating things, you should spend your time creating things. Um, yeah. And, and you're not, even if it were possible to kind of diminish the pirating of your work, you're not the right person to be doing that, right? right? You're, you should be writing your book. You should be thinking about your novel. You should be thinking about your game. You should be working on, on your song you know, or whatever it is yeah. um, that, you know, and, and just really genuinely just leave that out of your headspace and concentrate on being better at what you, you're doing. 
Yeah, and and for me, it goes back to the empathy aspect too. Someone someone downloads my book or you know pirates it. It's like maybe they can't afford it, or or even with my game, I had people on Reddit when I would give away promo codes or say you know uh, they're I give away a promo codes like hey this promo code doesn't work in you know South Africa. I can't use it here, um, and I really can't buy your game either because there's no really good means for me to buy something because I don't have a bank account or credit card like. Or it'd be a kid is like I'm I'm 13 years old like I, I you know I don't I don't I get an allowance I can't you know do this, um so sometimes it's like yeah I mean just give them the benefit of the doubt and say there's a reason why they can't shell over the cash. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um and um it's interesting um the the best selling Lean book in 2015 in terms of copies and revenue, um which are two separate calculations right right um what had a minimum price of zero. Um, right. So the, the you could the book that made the most money you could get for free, mm -hmm. um, and uh, this isn't as I like to say this isn't us being like precious like it's serious kind of business model right that that like yeah. giving that flexibility to people is actually beneficial um, and yeah. and and definitely I'm my personal belief is that spending time and energy in attacking people is really bad. <laughs> Um, yeah, that, like yeah, that is a, a counterproductive activity. It. Yeah. And like, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, it's interesting you're saying about like the kind of hide refunds at the app store, but you know, it used to be, you know, when I was a kid, if you like, you know, got your, um, remote controlled car for Christmas and you know, or whatever, and or your birthday and it didn't work and you took it back, you had to like engage in a negotiation and like prove yeah. that you didn't do it stand in line. And then they treat you in a sinister fashion, like maybe you were trying to hoodwink them or something like that. Right. The, the last time I tried to re I return something was like, um, at a, at, I, I don't know, a Best Buy or something. And they're just like, okay, got the receipt. And, yep, cool. and I handed it over and they gave me my money back. And it was like, that's the way they saved themselves so much money and made a happy customer by not being jerks about the exchange of money and goods. Um, and yeah. it seems to be something that, you know, we're, hopefully we'll get to the point where it's just total common sense that like being negative to everybody, um, you know, like, like for example, um, uh, DRM on, right. on, on an, on an ebook, for example, like treating all of your potential customers, like you think they might be bad Peace, actors. Right? Yeah. Is, is just a terrible approach. Um, and the, the people who are kind are going to win the hard ass war, um, right. which is, which is really interesting. Um, so, um, yeah, just moving on, I actually wanted to ask you um, a couple of questions about your book. Sure. So, um, uh, Surviving the App Store, it's a great title, by the way. Um, uh, you um, uh, did a really interesting thing where you had this sort of like very early release where you had a promotion. Um, right. Where it's like you can get it for a big discount if you buy it now, but, you know, there's, you know, there isn't any content in it yet. And I was wondering how that, how that worked out. It worked. Uh, it was the craziest thing. Um, so I, I did the free thing. I, I basically had just, uh, it was one page and it was like, this is kind of what my table of contents would be. Content would be. And I had a hello world and uh, I set the price to free and four ninety nine. And I was like, uh, you know, I tweeted about it. I had the cover. I did, I did my cover in Photoshop. Um, and I'm terrible at it. You can actually see the progression. I've got some tweets with the old cover on there. And I've got some feedback on that too, which was cool. But I put it out there and I was like, somebody talk me out of this, please. Somebody talk me out of writing a book. And then right off the bat, I got like insta buys. People, I got like 
five or six people paying me the five bucks for the book. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. I don't have any pages and you're buying my book. What's wrong with you? And then, um, and then from there I was like, okay, well, let me take my blog. Uh, you can, my blog is still up so you can read at least the initial response that I had. Um, it's, it's like a 14 month diary of everything that I went through. Um, so you can still read that. And I was like, okay, let me copy and paste that in there in the book and then read through it and then have a postmortem on my postmortems. So then, um, that was kind of like the first exclusive content that I added to the book. And I kept it free during that time period still. And, you know, just said, okay, here's the update to the book. And I kept on getting, you know, good feedback and good sales from it. So it's just, it's surreal that, uh, I can sell something, uh, I can sell a promise, right. Uh, that I've built up, uh, I've built up at least some credibility that says, I promise to do this. I have no pages. <laughs> Here's give me $5 and people did it. And it was just awesome. It's a really great feeling. That's great. Um, I was wondering actually, um, I mean, that might, the answer might be in there, but why did you choose to use LeanPub rather than any of the other platforms you could have used? Uh, I, I think like that was the one that I, that I heard the most about. Um, and I, another thing was like the GitHub integration was, was my primary point was that I could just, you know, have markdown files and have the GitHub stuff and it just kind of worked for me. Uh, so that's, that's the model that I went with. Okay, so the markdown was kind of a selling point. Yeah, the markdown and the GitHub integration was was the big selling point for me. And uh, I, a part of me was like, oh, I can make the repo public, but I decided to keep it private, um, just because you know during during my editing phase and whatnot. And they can get the book if if you really tried hard, you could probably go through all my Reddit entries and kind of glean some aspects of it. But at that point, it's like, yeah, I mean, email me and I'll give you a free copy of the book, right? Uh, so just do that. Um, another interesting angle that I had with the book was, uh, and, I, and I'm still playing around with it, especially if I get some um, more traction, is to keep it free. Uh, right now it's $4.99, the minimum price, but I might make it free again because it's free because uh, um, it's publicity for my, for my games. And that's, that's where my income really comes from is, is the games themselves. So um, I, I've been trying to think of ways where, is there a service that I can set up to where if you email me your iTunes receipt, and I see that you've bought my game that I could give you the book for free or, you know, some variation of that. But it just there's no public API to get sales information from from Apple. But uh, that's those are the kind of like weird things that I'm thinking about right now is that how can I drive more sales to my game? And then you get a lot of the 90 percent, you know, the other 90 percent for free. Um, so just just a letting my wheels spin on that. I think it's doable. Uh, I think it is actually really doable, but I just have to see if I can figure it out. <laughs> that you could do it the other way around where if someone bought your book, you could give them the game for free. Uh, I get a hundred prom promotion codes. So per release, so I could do it a hundred times, but that's, that's where, it, that's where it stops. Right. So, um, yeah, I was thinking about man, I could just set up some daemon process on some AWS AWS instance where you email this daemon process and then it parses the receipt and then you know gives you gets you a coupon code, gives you the you know coupon referenced so you can download the book for free. Um, and I'm sure people oh, oh I can and you, then you start thinking about well they might be able to forge the receipt and it's like you can't you can't start thinking about that kind of stuff. You just have to you know concentrate on those things, but. Uh, yeah, uh, and I think I emailed you before about this was a means to say have 
subscribe to my newsletter and get a discount on the book and just facilitate that through LeanPub. That'd be great. Um, and, uh, you know, different ideas there too. So I use, um, I use MailChimp right now and trying to figure out ways to integrate potentially if you subscribe, then send off this subsequent thing to give you the coupon code for the book. Uh, yeah, different ideas there too. It's, um, actually I went, my, my sort of last, um, uh, question related to that is, um, uh, the theme of your book is dealing and your posts is dealing with Apple um, right. as an iOS, you know, product maker. And I was wondering if you could just for a couple of minutes talk about what's that experience like? Um, uh, it's definitely don't call us. We'll call you. Right. Um, the, there's two sides of it. So the editorial team is like this, this untouchable group. You, no one has developers don't have direct access to them. So I have kind of like a liaison to the editorial team that will advocate for me. Um, and the the good thing about these liaisons, they're human beings. Like you can talk to them and send out a quick email saying, hey, man, I'm doing this, right? You don't have to worry about being all really formal with them and everything. So, uh, But it it is basically a black hole. You send things over and you get very little feedback coming back on the on the other end outside of the Thursday during lunchtime Cupertino where you get to see if anything really happened. Um, but I guess, you know, they're in a position where they can do that. And when you say, when so, you say editorial, is that about, is that both like approving the app or a new release and positioning in the app store? This is strictly for featuring. So curation of uh, a feature content. So as far as like rank, the ranking system, it's pretty much completely uh, uh, calculated off of the number of downloads you have. So from what I've seen, it's about a four to five day moving average of your downloads. Um, so like getting six to 700 downloads a day on the premium app store uh, will put you in the top 150 apps, 150 games. Getting six to 7,000 downloads a day in the free app store will put you in the top 150. So it's like a very, it's cal- you could calculate it very easily. Um, um, well, if you have the entire range, which I do. <laughs> um but um, but yeah, uh, the the entire feature process is 100% curated. There's no there's no automatic engine. There are people that look at apps, um, interact with developers, of course, interact with AAA companies, and they figure out what they want to feature and what they want to push, and they try to curate that content. And I think that's where the value is in the App Store. I haven't done much Google Play yet. I'm gonna I'm porting the game over right now. But um, as far as Apple, yeah, there. There's a lot of work that goes into getting good content out there. And frankly, it's good content. So when you see something featured, um, it's worth buying. Like I, I can strongly say that pretty, pretty uh, strongly, at least if it's not a AAA company, right? If it's some unknown company, if it's not Squaresoft, Kim Kardashian, King, Warner Brothers, buy it. Uh, you'll, you'll enjoy whatever it is. Oh, well, that's really great to know that, uh, that detail about that and that, um, you know, they're, they're doing a good job over there because um, sometimes, you know, as a sort of non-expert consumer, it's kind of hard to know. Um, my last question is, um, uh, if you could ask us to build one feature or solve one problem that you encountered at LeanPub, what would you choose? Uh, I think it'd be the newsletter thing, right? If I can collect an email for a discount, huge. I think that'd be pretty big for me. So what, what do you mean? Can you say maybe a little bit more about that? Because currently we uh, have a feature where when someone's buying a book, they can mm-hmm. choose to share their email address with you. Right. And you're saying you want something more than that. 
Right. If if they share the email address, I give them a discount. Oh, I see. Yeah, got it. Okay, understood. Right. Yeah, that's something we thought about before. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that'd be really that would be really cool from from my perspective because I've got, you know, the blog and the more people that I have on the blog, I can subsequently have, you know, different entries around development, game development. I can, you know, talk about my Twitch channel if I want to start that up, uh screencast and of course, you know, cross promote promote my games. Um so that'd be, you know, pretty valuable and and I I do believe I give good content, right? Outside of the book. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Actually, it's um on the theme of you know things things have changed because of technology and the types of products that we can um, create and, and sell to people and that people can buy. And there's a curious there's a there's a certain sort of category of author who comes to us thinking that by default you get a customer's email address, right? Um, which to me is just like I would that would never occur to me that like if I'm buying a book that the creator of it is going to get my email address now yeah that's but, personal <laughs> yeah well exactly but but it is but it's curious like i said like we're working out the codes right there are some people like especially people who live in the kind of newsletter marketing world often are like well that's that's like that's what i'm building right is my email right. and you know this is we're hearing this things about like sanders's email news list basically is this like you know hugely valuable thing that the clinton team is trying to get them to hand over and stuff. And so there are people who think like from the email out, right? right. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's something, it's something we encounter, but, but definitely giving people the option to share their email address with an author is something we, we really like because, you know, some people, uh -huh. we want to encourage people to establish a relationship with each other. Um, and out of all this down, out of all the subscriptions, only one person has opted out, right? So they, everyone's been really good about, giving their email on that note, you actually have to opt in. Um, so yeah, what, what yeah, that means sorry. everybody, yeah, but one person has, has actively opted in. So that says a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. okay. Well, thanks a lot, um, Definitely. for taking your time, uh, to talk about this. It was really interesting chat and, uh, yeah, thanks for being a lean pop author too. Oh, I love it. <laughs>